From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast of one of the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. Terrible at quoting, Mike. Um, uh, and when you make things for other people, they come along with a, you know, a drawing or a CAD model, and they say how much to make this. And in fact, my thesis at uh, Warwick, where I did my MBA, was developing a quantitative model to estimate the price of mold tools, because <clears throat> we were just so bad at it um, that I, that I was convinced. You know, some people said, "Well, it's like trying to estimate the." price of a painting by the frame it's in. And, you know, I was like, well, it can't be any worse than the way we do it right now. That was Mark Kirby. After graduating from MIT in aero-astro engineering, Mark joined Rolls-Royce working on air-breathing rocket engines before moving to his father's machine shop, JetBlades. Mark worked his way from CAD-CAM programmer to managing director, making parts for Formula One teams and Rolls-Royce jet engines. Mark joined Renishaw in 2013 to head their new Canadian added manufacturing business and start up their first North American solution center. In 2020, Mark moved to the University of Waterloo's multi-scale added manufacturing lab to lead industry outreach and training in added manufacturing. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Mark, thank you so much for joining the episode today. I think we're going to have a, a lot of good dialogue and hearing about your career story and additive. So like I do with all my guests, I think the the interesting place I like to start is is right from the beginning. So kind of where'd you grow up? Kind of what got you on the path towards where you are now? Well, we've only got 45 minutes or an hour, have we, Mike? It's, it's great to see you again. Um, yeah, sure. Let's, let's start at the beginning. My kids like to say, you know, it was way back when everything was in black and white. Um, so we will we'll start at the beginning. Uh, you know, when I went to school in the UK, I went to King Edward School, uh, which was uh, literally was hundreds of years old. And I did, I did physics and art. Um, I, I really liked physics and I really liked art. And uh, in the UK, the only thing you could do in combination with, with that was maths. Um, and the only career for you then. I make it sound very prescriptive, but it was fairly prescriptive, was you had to be an architect. You do mass physics and art and be an architect. And I, at the time, I thought I really didn't want to be an architect. Um, so when I finished school, um, I thought I'd had a pretty happy childhood. Uh, and I decided to take a year out and I went to work in a children's home in Birmingham, which is where I grew up in, in the middle of the UK. It's a pretty industrial area. So, uh, and this was working uh, with mainly single parent families. And I think it was probably where I learned one of my first really important life lessons, which is not every parent loves their child. You, you, we often take our experiences, you know, whatever happens to us, you know, we tend to project it and think, well, it's, that's true for everybody. And, you know, like I say, I, I I think my parents love me um, and hopefully my mom's listening, you know, and she still does. Uh, but, but uh, you know, that was a really important lesson, Mike, um, for me that, you know, not everybody has such a happy upbringing. Um, but during this, during this time working for the children's home, my parents met some Americans and their kids went to Harvard. 
uh, and they explained how the US system, you kind of applied to the university, you weren't admitted to a specific program. You were just so optimistically and maybe arrogantly, I applied to Harvard and MIT. Um, and uh, I didn't get in at Harvard, but I did go for an interview at MIT. And I was interviewed um, maybe prophetically by a guy in the admissions office called Neil Armstrong. It wasn't Neil Armstrong, the astronaut. Um, but most people came to MIT, uh, and you know you went there as well, Mike. Uh, you know a couple of decades after me, but but most people would come along and they would bring their laptop computer that was strapped to their belt that they had made over the summer. Um, but I came along with a lot of artwork that I had done while I was at school, which is pretty atypical, I think, for interviewing at MIT. That you know you whop out your your folder full of uh, artwork. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm not sure why I got in, um, but I did, I got in at MIT and, and discovered there that uh, physics actually uh, wasn't what I was interested in. And, you know, physics tended to be about, um, you know, th things that were smaller and smaller and, and harder and harder to understand. And actually what I, what I liked was engineering. So again, you know, I sort of, um, my my career has been a a progression a, a trajectory, and uh, so I, I did engineering, and then specifically I did aer aeronautical engineering, and even more specifically astronautical engineering. I wanted to be a rocket scientist, um, and uh, or sixteen, right? Yeah, of course, sixteen, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and it took me a little while to figure this out, so I graduated to. Um, at least a term late, I think, and went on and, and, and did a master's and had had a fantastic time, uh, had a pretty lousy time, I think, as an undergraduate, if I'm honest. It, 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 it was, I'm sure when you went, it, you know, it's no different. It, it, I used to come back to the UK and everyone would say, well, what concerts had you been to, et cetera. So, no, 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 I was pulling all-nighters and, you know, you don't, you don't understand. But uh, as a graduate student, I had, I had a good time um, and managed to started a PhD. And again, one of the life lessons you learn was that um, you can't just kind of study anything. You study what is kind of funded. And again, we'll probably come back to this later on. But uh, my, my prof, a guy called John Hansman, um, it, who was definitely, you know, uh, he, was, he was and still is one of my heroes, um, but he had money to study aircraft icing, which is what I did as an undergraduate. Um, and I found quite boring, but even though we got a patent together and it, it paid for a, uh, a used BMW when I got back to the UK, um, he had money to study the behavior of fluids in zero G and so I started a PhD in this, and then I was sort of like, well, you know, I'm going to be an expert. I'm going to be one of the few people in the world who understand how, you know, propellant sloshes around in a satellite. And I thought I might be badly adjusted, Mike. Um, so, uh, you know, I sort of joke and say, well, nobody understood my sense of humor, so I went back to the UK. And and nobody nobody still does understand my sense of humor. I mean, my kids tell me, you know, Dad, you're the only one who thinks you're funny. And I'm saying, hey, that's all that matters. But uh, I went back to the UK, and at the time, we in in Britain, we were doing a program called Hotel Horizontal Takeoff and Landing, um, which was a, a reusable space plane. Hey, it's funny how things come around, isn't it? We got our Artemis uh, hopefully going to blast off on Monday, and yeah, and I'm actually uh, heading Starship down there. getting ready for a 
for a hot fire. Yeah, you're going down to watch it, are you? Yeah, I'm taking my my son Hunter. We're heading down on on Sunday night, and we'll get up early and and watch it on Monday. Oh uh, well, it's it's you know what a great way to start the week, and you know I hope it, I hope it goes well, and you know again. Um, probably politically shouldn't shouldn't comment but you know our our team is you know maybe you know i'll i'll be somewhat deprecating and maybe say that's the kind of rocket maybe i would have designed and and these days we've got we've got new things coming along haven't we mike which are maybe even more exciting but it's it's exciting time anyway i left mit i got super lucky in that there was a job for a rocket scientist at rolls royce in the uk um, and I went there and worked on the RB545 engine, which was a combined air-breathing rocket engine, worked with some brilliant people, uh, Richard Varville, um, who's about the only guy who can explain uh, hypersonic cross-flow to you and make it uh, both interesting and understandable. Um, he and I flew a seaplane uh, back from Finland together, which is could, would take us much longer than this one hour, but uh, um, we'll have that story over a beer sometime. Um, worked with worked on this space plane for about a year, and then it became fairly clear to me, Mike, that it, this was never going to get built. Um, Rolls Royce saw it at the time as you know, how many engines does this program need? And really, it needed a kind of step change in thinking. You know, we're we're not going to be in the selling engines business. We're going to be in the space transportation business. And that wasn't at the time a business roles wanted to get into. Um, so again, arrogantly, um, I was like, right, if you're not going to build it, I'm not going to stay. And my dad had a little company called JetBlades, um, and they made JetBlades. They made blades for jet engines, among other things. A lot of people, for some reason, think thought we made uh ice skates i'm not quite sure but anyway we we really made jet blades and we made parts for formula one cars and i went there because they needed a cad cam programmer i didn't know what cad cam was i didn't know what cnc was i didn't know anything about manufacturing but that is when i fell in love with you know i had gone from physics at school to engineering at university to aeronautical engineering to manufacturing fell in love with manufacturing and i'm still thoroughly in love with it Mike, um, and you know that's that's kind of that was my edge. That was my education path, and and I was sort of reflecting a little bit, like I, you know, what was I bet you remember what was your GPA at uh, at MIT? Go on, but I tried to hit the bell curve right in the middle, so <laughs> I was happy if I got it over three, which was okay. pretty well. For uh, like a B average, I think. Or B like so four, four, four point yeah, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I so wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't top of the class. <laughs> and and neither, neither was I. But I was, you know, uh, you know, anybody at MIT is, you know, uh, you're in a kind of top X percent, aren't you? Um, and you know, when I was young, Mike, I wanted to be able to derive everything from first principles. Um, I was I was very very theoretical, very nerdy, um, and uh, you know I, I was sort of reflecting on education in general. I know you're really active in this right now, and I was just reading the post that that you were doing with this hands-on program with America Makes, and it, you know some of the fantastic facilities you're taking people to. 
uh, and just sort of thinking how maybe we're a little, you know, are we a bit like athletes? And, you know, when we're young, sort of we're, we're physically very capable, if you like. And, and, and yet when you get older, maybe you're not as physically capable, as, but you, you have more strategic sort of now, and a bit like the sort of player coach type of analogy. Uh, and, uh, you know, cause I was thinking, well, it's been a long time since you had any education and a, a lot of what we work on is not just education for the next, you know, the, the up and coming generation, but what about the generations who are already working and are going to continue to work and how do we, how do we get to where we are today? How do we know the stuff we know? And, and, you, you know, because the process is a lot less formal once you, you leave the system um, so where do you yeah. think you would have ended up if you didn't have, if your dad didn't, uh, have the company, like, how do you, like, would you have found a different type of, uh, AAA blades or something like that? Were you like, was there like, I don't uh, know because it was, it, it's a great question. I like, I never wanted to work with my dad. In fact, far from it. Dad was a chartered accountant. Um, so he liked making money. And ultimately, it turns out I like making things. And that wound up, you know, if you can make things to make money, then you're doing something right. And for a while, Mike, we did. But we were a small company. Um, you know, we were uh, originally 50 people. We had actually two companies. Um, we had Gosford Tool and Equipment, which made injection mold tools, mainly for the automotive industry, uh, and assembly fixtures for the automotive industry. Uh, and we had JetBlades, which was the... The toolmakers in Gosford Tool looked down their noses at the what they called the button pushers in Jet Blades because you know it was all CNC and all he did was push a button and there was no real skill. So there were, and it was a unionized environment. And despite all of my education, so I'd been to MIT, I got a bachelor's, I got a master's, I got you know, a you know, I, um, I was a little bit ahead of the bell curve. I, I got an MBA from Warwick University. And yet three years after joining this company, one of them went bust and I was managing director by then. So, you know, I clearly had to take responsibility and, and do take responsibility for that. So for all of this education, you know, I screwed up. Um, and, you know, was it all my fault? No. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it, was, it was kind of another interesting and painful life, life lesson when, 40 people lose their jobs. Your family who's dependent on you are now, you know, how are you going to support them? You feel a failure. Um, we managed from the ashes to save Jet Blades. We went from 50 people to 10. We were supplying Rolls-Royce who were not exactly happy with reading about, oh, you've gone bust. And we're like, no, 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 that's our sister company that's gone bust. But but either way, you know, you were already way too small. And and eventually, Mike, we were we were always going to be food for somebody as a small company because we we bought a couple of million dollars worth of titanium forgings every year. We machined them and sold them back to Rolls-Royce. Um, so the titanium forger really wanted to be doing what we were doing. Rolls-Royce didn't really want to be dealing with a little company like us. So we were under constant kind of pressure, um, both from our customer um, and again, we had 80% of our business with one customer, which is strategically a bit of a no-no, but really difficult to change. Um, and, and from our supplier who wanted to take our place. So 
I was kind of lucky that uh, I managed to sell the company uh, and sold it to a, to a company who wanted to get into aerospace. And uh, my wife, we were walking in the park one day and she said, why don't we, why don't we move to Canada, Mark? And uh, I was like, yeah, that's how, for somebody who is, who is, you know, Mr. Analytical, I'm a pilot as well. You know, everything's kind of was calculated. Uh, this was a, a relatively, um, it wasn't an emotional decision, but it was an irrational. It was, it appeared to be an irrational one, but it was apart from marrying my wife, coming to Canada was, uh, I think probably the, uh, and of course having our children, the uh, one of the very best things things that we did. And, and that's ultimately where I became involved in additive since uh, I think that was your original, that was your original question. And so with the, you mentioned kind of the, the, the sister company kind of failed, you were managing director yes. and, and you had all this education behind you, but realistically, like what, what were some of the lessons that you either missed or were lacking in kind of the education piece that might've helped, or is it just one of those things like, Hey, like a lot of things aren't out of your control. The only way you get better at this is by, uh, by doing it. Like you can't see the future. Like there, there are certain things that are out of your control, right? Yeah. I, um, again, fantastic question. Um, you, you know, could, could I have done, could I have done anything differently? Could I have, you know, was there a key mistake? I, I think probably not. I think the path was probably set for us. Um, the, the businesses were, barely making any money. So um, they didn't have much headroom, you know, when I joined them, if you like, um, which is typical of a small business. You know, it's unusual um, that, that they're doing extraordinary, you know, small businesses tend to be small businesses for reason. In fact, there's a, you know, I think there's a theory about, you know, sub, there is no money in subcontracting. Uh, I'm not sure that's true, but um, uh Anyway, we didn't have much headroom, and we took on. We were we were terrible at quoting, Mike. Um, uh, and when you make things for other people, they come along with a you know a drawing or a CAD model, and they say how much to make this. And in fact, my thesis at uh, Warwick, where I did my MBA, was developing a quantitative model to estimate the price of mold tools, because <clears throat> we were just so bad at it. Um, that, I, that I was convinced, you know, some people said, well, it's like trying to estimate the price of a painting by the frame it's in. And, you know, I was like, well, it can't be any worse than the way we do it right now. And, and of course, I was able to prove using, uh, using Minitab, as of course you do, um, that, that, you know, I could make a, a good statistical model. But we wound up misquoting a very large job. Um, to make uh, assembly fixtures, you know, for automation in the car industry. And by the time we got into a sort of, uh, I guess, half a million dollar project and discovered that, you know, while half a million dollars sounds like a lot of money, when you find out that all of the hydraulic clamps and everything are going to be $400,000 and you had you really hadn't done the mass properly and you go back to the customer who is an automotive tier one and say, you know, we need to renegotiate they, they promptly cancelled the contract on us, which was was kind of the death blow for us. So the, I guess the 
understanding the power dynamics of you know small company versus big company you know how would you how would you understand that until you've kind of experienced it um and you know it was a pretty uh baptism by fire for sure um so uh, you, you know should we have done a better job at quoting it yes we should have done um you know should we have identified the risk this is a really big job but you know, small businesses kind of, you know, when a really big job comes along, they normally want to say yes, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, whereas when you're a bigger company, you can maybe afford to say no. So, you know, I, I'm not making, ex- not making excuses, but I think the second part of your, you know, it, you know, is it this sort of, it's, it's like aviation, isn't it terribly unforgiving? It, it gives the exam first and the lesson afterwards. And I think, I think maybe businesses like that as well. Um, and you know this is why you do need to take a few exams and you 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 get some scars but hopefully you you know you become a better person for it you know I, I certainly think I think I was a terrible boss when I was younger um, I really was um, I, I wasn't a very nice person when I you know <laughs> I hope my mum isn't listening because she'll disagree with this but you know I'm a much I'm a much better person now my wife you know my wife is very human. Um, she can, you know, she has empathy. Um, you know, I had analysis. I always used to joke, hey, you know, I, I like working with machines because I can make them do what I want them to. And, you know, I still do, you know, I still find that curiously satisfying. Um, people are a lot tougher, but 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 they're a lot more rewarding, you know, when when you do that. And, you know, you you work in, you, you fundamentally, your career has been working with people. Um, and, you know, I was, you know, I, I'd like, when we, when we get to additives, sort of compare and contrast kind of the the, the choices that we made. But uh, yeah, I don't think I could have, I don't think I could have saved the tool making business. From a family perspective, I think I paid my, I like to think I paid my dad back. They're not small amount of money. It cost him to put me through MIT. Um, you know, my parents had never been to university. So, you know, again, it was, it was kind of a big step. Um, but JetBlades, we did make some good money um, for a while. Uh, and, you know, we did quite a lot of things right. Dad, dad was a visionary. He put in CNC equipment. He put in CAD CAM. He put in you know, BS5750, which was ISO 9001 QC systems. Uh, he, 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 put in all of the right technology, but then my ultimately I became the one who sort of figured out, you know, how do we now really use it? So I was always more of a Luddite, not a Luddite, but I was more conservative in technology choices, even in flying, like we had a we had an airplane and we needed to update the avionics. And um, there was something called area navigation, which was the VOR needles. It was sort of analog steam-driven stuff, but it was the gold standard in flying. And I was like, well, that's what we need, Dad. And Dad was like, no, we should put this new GPS in. You know, I was like, oh, you know, we should. And, of course, he was absolutely right. The GPS was was amazing. So, again, sort of interesting, isn't it, Mike? You know, I, I was, the, you know, maybe I'm doing a, a great character assassination job of myself, but I, I think I'm just trying to be honest and, and you know, say that you know we're with the sum of our experiences and you know dad dad had part of his dna was was you know making these these investment decisions which were they were gut decisions and again a lot of what i deal with 
in my additive career is about adoption of, of technology and, you know, how do you make those kind of decisions? And, you know, dad had this ability to look at things and say, yeah, I think we, I think we should do that. Um, and, uh, you know, as a small company, sometimes you're, you, you know, you inherit your mistakes, whether they're people or people or machines, neither of them are easy to change once you've made those decisions. So anyway, reflections, <laughs> reflections from the, from the early days when everything was in black and white. Yeah. And so kind of as we move on in your career, kind of where, where did the additive piece come in? Where did the additive piece come in? Well, again, it was a little like a joke. Um, you know, I said, yes, thinking how difficult can it be? And, uh, not really meaning it. I had worked with Renishaw equipment all of my life. Um, so Renishaw world-class engineering company who, who do many, many things. Um, I, I, one of which is uh, connected with process control on um, typically subtract, subtractive equipment. Um, you know, I, I joke and say they make machines that go beep. They make the probes on the machines that uh, measure parts very, very accurately and repeatably. And if you can build a process around that, then you can potentially eliminate people and variation, um, both both of which cost you money, um, but it's uh, it's a lot. It's easily said and it's hard to do, and and that's what I spent the first part of my career in Canada doing. I worked as a consultant for aerospace companies in the Maritimes. They had made the million dollar decisions on equipment, but again, rather like you know, my dad maybe didn't know how to use them, um, and my job was to uh, again use them to make money. And I and I used a lot of Renishaw equipment and software and had a very close working relationship with the people at Renishaw. Uh, and that led them in 20, 2012, 2013 to saying they were just getting into additive. And they said to me, you know, hey, Mark, what do you think about um, joining us and heading up additive for us? And as I said, I, I said yes, not really meaning yes. Um, but, uh, you know, I never really looked back. I was still living in New Brunswick, uh, which is on the east coast of Canada, Renishaw, and, you know, a lot of manufacturing in Canada is uh, 1,500 kilometers to the west. It's not a very easy commute. Um, so, it, you know, I joined Renishaw 2013. Uh, it was very early. It was very early days. Um, and I think... Again, my career has been, you know, I've worked for the, the small company. I've worked for Rolls-Royce, the larger company. I've consulted for mid-sized companies. Um, Renishaw is obviously quite a, quite a big company. Um, and they're all different, they're all different experiences. Um, but it was, you know, what is it, what are they, how do they describe education at MIT, Mike? What's the, the famous expression, drinking? Drinking from a fire hose. Drinking from the fire hose, yeah, the fire hose of knowledge. And and boy, you know, the early days of additive at Renishaw was exactly like that for me. And, and it still is. And I'm I'm sure you find the same thing that that um, it's you know, there's just so much to learn. Um, and it's you know it it's far from just technical. Um, in fact, I think probably you know my experience in my experience in additive now was around, you know, selling million-dollar machines. Um, you know, they're not always a million dollars, but it, it always sounds good when you say that. And they are close enough to being a million dollars. Um, 
I, I know I have all these family stories, but uh, my my youngest daughter Megan, uh, you know, she she was like, we were discussing it one day, and I said, Meg, do you, do you really know what I do? And she said, Well, it's got something to do with lasers and cats, hasn't it, Dad? And I, and and I said, No, there are no cats involved, Megan. And she said, Well, that's obviously where you're going wrong, Dad. Um, we did make cranial plates for dogs um, who had some tumors on their heads, but uh, yeah, it was it was um, really interesting. I think we put the first laser powder bed machine in academia in Canada that went into Nova Scotia Community College in 2013. Um, that was a, a real uh, eye opener for me. You know, what's it like? Uh, installing one of these machines in a facility. Uh, how do you train people to use it? Um, you know, it, it's you know the, the there's the operator safety, and then there's the whole sort of uh, design for additive piece, and they're t- they're two very different different but re- but related related pieces. So um, got into it, and Renishaw then set up. So we actually set up what was the first solution center in North America, in Canada, which was a facility where we tried to bring everything together to show industry, um, you know, what does it look like? Um, Because you've got this million dollar machine and you can show people videos, you can show them a catalog, but actually letting them get hands on with with the technology and kind of seeing how do you go end to end was a... Uh, at the time, a relatively new concept. And it's it's interesting now, Mike, how solution centers, I always got told off because I always used to call it solution center, a singular. And there was, no, 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 there's an S on it. And of course, it was all about, you know, it's not just about one piece of technology and additive still isn't, you know, and I often, I, I say to people, you know, you really need to have a plan for what you're going to do with that after you've printed it. Um, and you know, looking at it, you know, as a as a print sits there on a on a bill plate or whatever, and then sort of like, mm, I wonder what we're going to do next. You know, so that's a really bad plan. Um, but you have to have been there uh, to sort of understand, you know, well, what does happen next, and what decisions should I maybe have taken earlier on. So the the solution center really brought all of that to life, and it was um, it was a very heady time uh we were you know Renishaw um you know was successful has been successful in, in Canada it's been successful globally I think nobody in fairness Mike has been as successful you know who would who would say we've been absolutely as successful as we want to be we've sold everything we want so in fact we're sold out we're not going to sell any you know no nobody says that and um so uh, and it's just it, tough. I mean, it's a million dollar machine. It's new technology. Like there's a lot of, it's not easy to set up. There's safety issues. There's design issues. There's all the post-processing. And, and so it's not like. And, and people would, yeah. would, you know, one of the things was, you know, what kind of what's changed, if you like, from, you know, if we go back 10 years to, to now. And, and one of the things that I think is changing is you're not spending as much time explaining, you know, what is an additive machine? Like nobody would ask you, I think, Mike, you know, well, what's a CNC mill? You know, what does it do? Right. 
you know, what's a CNC lathe? What's a, what does EDM stand for, in, stand for? Now, maybe some people are listening to this like, what does EDM stand for? Electro-discharge machine, by the way, wire erosion or spark erosion. But actually explaining sort of what additive is um, takes up quite a lot of bandwidth. Um, and I think, you know, we did spend a lot of time explaining what additive is. And, and to some extent, the as the technology pushes pushes forward and you know every i'm not sure it's every week but certainly every month there's there's some new you know alleged breakthrough isn't there it's faster it's different and we wind and then we wind up trying to understand well you know i i get told off now i work for the university of waterloo we're not allowed to call it 3d printing it's additive manufacturing <laughs> um and you know i i prefer calling it 3d printing um, just because you know, everybody at least has some sort of visual idea of what 3D printing is. They don't think but, you're mixing inks together, right? <laughs> some, some weird alchemy. Yeah. But, but, but there are so many nuances on you know, what kind of 3D printing are you doing um, that, again, I think we sort of, we don't shoot ourselves in the, in the foot because clearly technology does need to advance and we need to be, you know, we need to do it faster. We need to do it better. Um, and you know, there are there are competing new technologies. But we're we're always, Mike, competing with. You know, it's my first question to people: is how are you solving the problem right now? Um, you know, we have metal airplanes and we have composite airplanes, and you know, uh, we're very very good at building metal airplanes. I remember talking to Bert Rutan did. One of the things, I think it comes back to that arrogant streak I've got, but, you know, I wouldn't be afraid to try and start up a conversation with people. And I, I did have a conversation with Bert Rutan um, and, uh, you know, he was uh, scaled composites and kind of maybe one of the fathers of, of composite aircraft. And he said, you know, these days, if we came along with metal and said we're going to build, if we'd never built airplanes in metal and said we're going to build them in metal, um, and we'd been building stuff in composites, he just said people would say you're crazy to build in metal because of things like fatigue and corrosion. Um, but because we've been doing it for, you know, what over 100 years, we've got really good at, good at it. And it's the same, you know, additive is always competing with other, you know, we've been making things for thousands of years and we are competing with that. Um, so understanding in what way, and what way is it better? How does it solve the problem? You know, what problem are you trying to solve? And if the problem is, well, my parts are too expensive, and that's, you know, I'm sure you've come across that. That's it's about an 80-20 rule, isn't it, Mike? You know, where where that, that's a pretty common answer. Um, and you know, it's sort of kind of like, well, wake up and smell the coffee. This is, you know, we haven't really got some magic dust in it. Yeah, we can look at a total, you know, total cost of ownership, and I can paint you a picture where. Yes, it's cheaper, you know. If it, but you have to take a different point of view, and then people find it pretty hard to take different. You know, they're they're like, you know, you know, well, that's not in my budget. So I think cost is still, you know, probably one of the uh, big barriers that we still face to adoption. Cost sure. of the machines and and you know, cost. You know, they are still. You know, are they still million dollar machines? And you know. Uh, no, they're not, and but they are still not super super cheap, are they? 
yeah, and this perspective of how you take the long-term view of some of this stuff, right? You need people in companies. They may not like very often these days, you're not going to be at a company for 20, 30 years. And so you don't get to see the full progression. People want to get their quick win of getting promoted and either bringing in a machine or seeing something like that. And it, you need sometimes the patience of, 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 of time and seeing how it evolves in the company and saying probably with the university where you're at. And I think kind of getting to the next question is like, these are million dollar machines. It's expensive to invest in if you're a university, if you're a company. Um, but there is this always challenge of like, how do you, like the question I always get is like, okay, how, uh, the technology is always evolving. Like when is the right time to buy a machine, right? If I'm a university, like I want to be on the cutting edge, but I want to buy this 12 laser system and next week it's going to be 25 but there's still useful things for it. And like there's training aspects, there's academic research, but there's always in the back of people's mind that like, I'm just going to wait until it matures. Absolutely. Right? And I think, you know, uh, the, you know, as consumers, Mike, we're super used to, you know, whether it's a TV or a computer or a phone that, um, you know, if I, if I wait a little bit, it'll get both better and cheaper. Uh, and um, so that sort of I should wait uh, makes a lot of sense to us as a consumer. I think the, the counterpoint to that is, the, what I, is your kind of learning curve, both as an individual and as an organization, that, um, you know, you forego learning about this technology if you don't get involved with it. So, but sometimes you don't actually have, you still don't have to buy in order to learn, you know, and again, it's, you know, that's where universities can provide a, a valuable um, part in helping companies understand what the technology can do. Um, OEMs, of course, can play, play a role in that. Uh, so, but I think going down the learning curve is important. And how do we how do we facilitate that? And you know, if the learning curve is steeper than the sort of Moore's law technology curve, and I like, of course, MIT have written papers um, probably on both things, but they've certainly written one on the sort of Moore's law for all technologies, which is again interesting read. Um, and uh, but I, I don't have any evidence that one is steeper than the other. I just have the sort of personal experience of how invaluable an organization figuring out, you know, how it should use different, you know, it's just technologies, tools, you know, how does it need to change? We started this conversation with, you know, well, Mark, why did Gosford go bust? You know, what could you have done differently? Um, and, you know, so, and really as a small company, the decision about, um, not dying tomorrow uh, is kind of the one that says, "Well, I, I can put I can put this decision off," uh, and I'm sure y- you know you experience the same thing I- in the U.S. with companies sort of wanting to wanting to wait, but you can only learn so much from you know YouTube, etc. Which is why I think whatever you're doing with your hands-on program with 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 youth and and presumably with industry as well in getting them to different facilities you went to was it uh, MXD or something the other day um, right. yep. and just kind of looking at again at how they've got 
rather like the solution centers where they're demonstrating how these technologies can fit together. They're not actually selling something. The I, I just wanted to compare and contrast sort of working for the OEM and working for a university. And, and I, I like to say that um, now that I work um, for the university, I, I think I have a much more collaborative um, lens than, than, I, than the competitive lens I didn't realize I had when I worked for an OEM. Um, and I think anyone who's listening who works for an OEM will, you, you might think that you're completely agnostic or as agnostic as you could possibly be. And, and, I, and I thought I was, but I, I, I realized afterwards that every article you read on LinkedIn, you kind of filter through how does this affect, how does this affect us? And I, I thoroughly enjoy the collaborative nature of being a university, despite the fact that, you know, universities still wind up kind of, there's still a competition for academic excellence. And, and you know, it's not all roses by any means, but um, I think it's a great place to have a, a broader engagement. And, and presumably, Mike, I wanted to, to ask you, 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 you went to MIT and then was it Loughborough that you went to? Um, That's right. Did, yep. I did, did the opposite track. You, yeah, yeah. I went yep. went back you, your way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and 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 you went on. You got your PhD, and you were you were, when I first met you. You were, I think, you were working with Burton Snowboards, and the apocryphal image I have that I, you know I remember um, was you know you were designing new. Um, snow boots I guess to go on the boards or uh and then you were up in the mountains sort of printing and I like to think you were sort of printing a, a new design and then people would go out and ride it the next day um which sounds like it was sort of the, the a dream job and and yet industry hasn't lured you away Mike you've you've formed three degrees you've been you've been consulting and you know I've consulted too and it's a, it's a tough gig what why did you choose that path if you don't mind me asking yeah i mean that was a like a good question I, I think so when i was at burton i was still doing my phd they were it was co-sponsoring my my work so i got to work with a couple of guys named ryan larson john cross who were over at burton and gave me a lot of <laughs> My first lessons in additive, we were making, doing a lot of material designing, testing, things like that. And, and I always try to time my, my trips over in the winter time. Um, but yeah, when that, when that finished, that was kind of around 2012, um, additive was still nascent. Uh, I think for me, um, I didn't want to do more like bench top lab materials work. I, I felt that I had a gap in, at least uh, I didn't want to go into academia and do teaching at, at the time. I think I wanted to experience industry, experience business. Um, I'd met my now wife around that time in Chicago and wanted to come because it's kind of geographically where I wanted to be. Um, and there weren't, weren't that many opportunities here. And um, I probably subconsciously always had the streak in me where I didn't like being told what to do <laughs> in a sense, not that I don't yeah. like to work with teams or things like that. It's, it's, I think what I've like about three degrees and what I've done with AMX, the training program and our trace AM software is I get a lot of optionality. I view having a company that, yeah, I make money on this. I mean, the first year I think I made 
maybe ten, twelve thousand dollars like not enough really to <laughs> not a great living but as it grew and got some more stability with with different projects i think the um the ability to try different things was what i like and and try different things like the podcast like i can't if i were working for a big company or even a medium-sized company it's not a priority like this doesn't make money right like it, it's but there's um but i like to do it and uh, so i don't I can justify it in different ways. And, and I think the other thing is I like the long-term view of what does success mean? I've always tried to take a longer term view. It's like, Hey, this, this thing didn't work out, but it taught me X, Y, and Z. And so I think there's not a outside pressure from an investor or a, uh, a program manager or something like that, that is defining what I do every day. Um, obviously there's, pre- come there's pressure like has somebody come close to luring you away from three degrees over the years not really andy yeah. snow asks me every time i see him so uh from eos <laughs> okay okay um we have a running we have a running joke about it it's been it's been 10 years so i mean it's uh not, no uh, i know because i i met you you were just you were just starting out and as you yeah. say the industry was so young there maybe weren't the opportunities there are today um but you know being master of your own destiny you know everyone everyone always thinks the grass is greener don't they mike um and it it's it's a tough road to hoe no matter which way you go but uh no it's it, it's fantastic what you've done uh with three degrees and you know uh you know i'm i'm pleased that the industry is significantly more buoyant today um you know than it was 10 years ago even though as we say you know it's maybe not as buoyant as everybody wanted it to be but uh, yeah yeah and so kind of as we kind of wind down for the interview i mean like what what are you kind of doing today in terms of your role at waterloo like what are you seeing in terms of the the industry and 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 your role in it it's still about adoption mike because if people don't use this technology then uh, you know there's no there's nowhere for the talent to go. So, you know, the university is a talent pipe, you know, it's a combination, it's a talent pipeline, um, you know, because research research without people isn't, you know, doesn't happen, does it? Um, so, you know, even though there's, I think there are different schools of thought on, you know, what what is the function of a university? Is it to do research? Is it is it to is it to teach students? And, you know, I, you know, I like to think it's, I like to think it's both, um, you know, uh, so my job is working. Typically, I think I sort of have a, a foot in in industry in the customer camp and in the university uh, camp in terms of what kind of what kind of problems is industry wanting to solve? How can we how can we help? And how can we ensure some kind of a longer term benefit rather than just, you know, well, we, we figured out the answer to a really complicated, you know, specific problem uh, that might, for example, it might benefit industry, but it doesn't have a bigger pull on the kind of ecosystem. So, you know, I like to be involved in projects where industry is looking typically at different technologies in the, you know, Waterloo, where I am, we have uh, probably, I, I, I don't know, a million, we, we do literally have millions of dollars worth of different types of equipment, uh, different technologies. And so it's a good way to com- compare how the technologies 
perform for industry to get more hands-on. That's something that I am trying to champion at Waterloo. It's not that common at universities for industry to be more hands-on. <laughs> Sometimes it's, you know, hand you know, give us your money, but you know, we 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 you know leave us leave us be. Um, I think Waterloo, Waterloo in general has a very strong entrepreneurial kind of DNA. Um, we're in the process of moving to a new facility where all of our equipment will be under one roof. Um, it'll be much easier for us to work with industry there. But you know, we are uh, we're not. It's a thin line. It's a thin line, as the Pretender song would go. You know, between between collaboration and competition. Um, it's a thin line between love and hate, actually, isn't it, is what she sings. But, uh, I, you know, and, and I think I'm, I'm better at walking that collaboration line now. Um, but, you know, it, and Canadians tend to be fairly collaborative in nature. Uh, and we definitely need to be because, you know, we're a, we're a geographically big nation, but we're, a, we're, we're also we're a small nation in terms of sort of our kind of internal market, as it were, but we should be able to be agile. And you know, one of the things about Additive is meant to be: hey, it's agile, it's customized. In many ways, Additive ought to be a sort of perfect fit for Canada, uh, you know, as a, as a tool, if you like. Um, but you know, again, it's easy, easily said, hard to, hard to do. Um, I'm not sure that really explains explains what I do. I do do, you know, I keep my I, I keep my hand in. I do get involved in projects. I like to mentor students. I don't I don't teach, um, but I think again, as as we get um, older, we have different different kind of skill sets. So sometimes, you know, you know, I think advice for students is you know like, well, you you probably should you know be on LinkedIn. Because if you want a job, then you should at least have a look around. People should know about you. Um, and even if you want to stay in academia, you probably want to do research with industry. So you should still be on LinkedIn. Um, uh, so, but, you know, I started coming back to the beginning, you know, when I went to MIT and I showed them my artwork and I got in there, I think having uh, a breadth of experience and figuring out, you know, we often figure out what we enjoy, Mike, by, you know, maybe sometimes figuring out what we really don't like. Um, and you, you don't know it till you try it. Um, so I, I love the fact that, again, you're working with people, giving them hands-on hands -on experiences. It's a, little, it's a little harder in Canada sometimes because we're, you know, we're, we're so spread out sometimes to, to give access to people. But we've got a lot of equipment across the country. And one of the exciting ideas we're trying to work on is, 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 you know, how can we move people to different facilities so that they can get different experiences of, uh, of both, you know, machines, applications, you know, kind of cultures. It's always, you know, as a consultant, I'm sure you find when you go to different places, you, you know, everywhere has, you, you always learn something new. And, you know, it, it's that immersion experience that you're learning. And that's that sort of that sort of lifelong learning um, experience that we have. So I definitely try to promote that wherever, wherever and however I can. And again, you know, this podcast is an example. Thank you for, you know, having the discussion and, uh, you know, ho hopefully again, uh, you know, we can see some people who, you know, might not have thought 
university is a you know it is a they may have a fairly narrow view of what a university can do and again i think just like maybe you might have had a narrow view of what additive manufacturing can do you probably should revisit that assumption in in 2022 absolutely well mark thank you so much for joining the show and uh hopefully see you in person a few few weeks a few months here thank you so much mike really appreciate it goodbye